Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that doesn't know its arse from its alba. My name is Corey Hazelast and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. This week, we're discussing a bombshell poll from The Guardian that 53% of British voters think that Scotland should be an independent country within 10 years. That's a headline from 1999. It's also taken from an onward report. They've done a very extensive poll looking at the union, looking at Scottish independence, and also gives us a chance as, as Little Englanders to discuss Alex Salmond, Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish elections coming up. There's new parties being formed left, right and centre, in a very literal sense. Maybe the first of a, an occasional series of podcasts on on the union, because we are nearing our fifth birthday, and we've talked a lot about Brexit, but we haven't necessarily talked about the the role of the the union in that. I was struck when to reading Three Years in Hell, which was Fintan O'Toole's book on his collected columns that was out. But in the first column that I think he he writes either just before the referendum is or just afterwards, Fintan O'Toole essentially nails a lot of the, the wider constitutional politics of the, the five years we've seen. Issue over the Northern Ireland border and whether or not you can maintain a hard border in Ireland uh, or maintain an open border in Ireland is going to be a massive issue that the Brexit campaign hadn't really thought about. They talk about the uh, issue of Scottish independence being a, a massive, massive issue. It's not really something that we've discussed much on the podcast and it's probably not something that we really thought about until after the referendum why do you think that is lack of coverage in a lot of ways of of scottish affairs in when it comes to to english media Um, and also i I would argue as a result of that british media as well because an awful lot of britain is defined by by england um just due to it being the bigger the bigger country out of the countries that make it make up britain an awful lot of the daily aspects of 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 politics in up in scotland because so so much of it is devolved don't get get covered so really the only time we end up kind of seeing it and going oh we should talk about that is around about election kind of time when you know suddenly nicola sturgeon ends up um you know on the leadership debates as well as when something big happens such as uh, as, as has happened over the past breakdown in relationships seemingly between uh, Nicola Sturgeon and uh, Alex Salmond whilst for the most part what the SNP do in power doesn't get a lot of lot of coverage. I think to an extent some of that is is true isn't it the in terms of the SNP record in government uh, which is pretty shaky you know if you look if you, in the, the Economist this week talks about the Nicola Sturgeon just the longevity of how long the SNP have been around is is quite scary actually because so Nicola Sturgeon became deputy first minister in Scotland when Tony Blair was still in Downing Street so it's a long time and I think one of the skills of the SNP has been despite their rather rocky record in government they've still managed to defy political gravity in that sense still very very popular and Nicola Sturgeon quite popular. I wonder though you said that Britain becomes a sort of part of England 
I wonder if it's almost the other way around. So the, the argument Anthony Barnett makes in the law of greatness is that almost England kind of gets subsumed into Britain. So there's a Scottish Labour Party. There isn't an English Labour Party, say. It, one of the things about Brexit in particular is it's quite an English creation. Scotland votes to stay in, in, in the European Union in 2016. Northern Ireland votes to stay in. And then well, Barnett kind of calls it London, uh, London and then England without London. So the reason why the UK voted to leave is essentially because of the votes in England. And he sort of posits that maybe that's because there isn't that, again, that lure of greatness. It's, it's that looking for identity. I think there's a lot of truth to that, but I also think there's a lot of truth to the to the opposite view as well. And we, and I don't think it's simply a case of, yes, it is England just been subsumed into Britain but uh, as a concept, but also... England drives, as you say, an awful lot of what Britain does at, at, at the same time. They are both true whilst seemingly at points, you, you know, contradictory, which is part of the reason we're in a lot of the constitutional mess, <laughs> I feel, right now. Just thinking about what's happened in Scotland generally, there's a really excellent book called Brexit Land, which is by Robert Ford and Maria Sobolewska. I think might be how you pronounce her name. I hope that's right. And really terrific look at the change in attitudes and the demographic changes in the electorate and how we've sort of come to this particular point. I suppose sort of the main thesis is essentially that the electorate is in three main camps. You've sort of got what it calls the sort of ethnocentric um, sort of identity conservatives who tend to view politics through that sort of sense of identity and, and belonging sort of small C conservative, the sort of were the dominant force in the electorate in the 1950s, where most people in the, you know, in, in the 1950s, 18, 90% of those who voted were white and left school with no qualifications or maybe with school age qualifications. So you, you've got that group. You've also then got, the rise in what it calls sort of identity liberals. And that's been driven massively by high, uh, the rise in higher education that we've seen over the past 30, 40 years. And we've talked about the sort of graduates and how universities are sort of drive of social liberalism in a way that it kind of irritates Gavin Williamson slightly. Uh, and we've talked about that kind of at length in the podcast. And then you've got sort of ethnic minority voters. The argument in, the, in Brexit land is that often... Although uh, a lot of ethnic minority voters might side with, but might, might agree with a lot of kind of ethno-conservative voters on a, on a lot of, say, social issues, often they tend to have voted with identity liberals because often feels that Labour has done a, a bit more to sort of fight for the rights of ethnic minorities than the Conservatives have. And that sort of harks back to, say, the Enoch Powell speech and, and Rivers of Blood. There's the idea that Labour's more on, on the side of ethnic minority voters. Than, uh, than the Conservatives are. And so these, these three groups generally split between the different political parties over the 80s and 90s. And then what Brexit does is essentially sort of merge the parties much more so into two tribes. And you see that in, in terms of people's leave identity and remain identity is often stronger now than their attachment to a political party. Uh, and so the reason why the Conservatives have been so successful, and I'm going to talk about this, is about what they've managed to do is get more of the Leave identity in their voting coalition than Labour managed to get of the 
Remain coalition in 2019. What I found interesting, what they say about Scotland is that that's not quite how the independence vote plays out. So actually, you look at the SNP coalition and they've got a much bigger mix of the sort of ethnocentric vote and the identity liberal vote. So what the SNP have done, and we've again, we, we've sort of hinted at that kind of clever politics, not only sort of frame Scottish independence as being about identity and it being about, you know, you're Scotland and you have a, a Scottish tribe, that's your identity and you're more Scottish than British, maybe even more Scottish than European. But also they've managed to frame the issue of independence and, and what the SNP are doing, that what is happening is right-wing Tory governments are imposing policies on Scotland almost against the will of the Scottish people and sort of framing themselves as being a bit more left-wing than that. So what that's done is, is meant that a lot of sort of identity liberals, quite, quite left-wing, they are also then SNP supporters for that reason. I think it's a really interesting political dynamic in Scotland because it doesn't quite fit the main divide in British politics and what is interesting I think about some of the polling in this in this onward report is it sort of talks about how Brexit has might have hardened attitudes on Scottish independence in the two different groups around the margins, but it hasn't really changed the debate of Scottish independence very much at all. It is quite interesting how Scotland, as you say, is, is different to a lot of the rest of the UK when it comes to this in particular. Part of that is because the SNP have just been able to, as you say, build up that not quite sure if this is quite the, the, the correct term here, but they've, they've very much been kind of built up a, a frame of othering Britain. Um, it's always Westminster's fault. It's always the elites in Westminster um, who are responsible for all of these things. That 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 kind of, you know, it, it's typical nationalist rhetoric. Uh, you could you could see it with with Donald Trump when he was talking about Mexicans. You could see it. Um, it you'll, you'll be able to see it if you look into it. it look in Italy. You can see it with uh, in, in France with the Front National, like that 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 othering of a a, a group. Now the SNP has not gone to the extent of blaming English people, you know, for, for Scottish woes, but they have absolutely built up this narrative uh, that is, is very easy to believe um, that, you know, it's Westminster's fault because Westminster is consistently being run by people who do not have um, Scottish interests at heart, um, as demonstrated by the fact that very few uh, con uh, Conservatives are elected in uh to uh, in scotland to, to to westminster they're able to kind of like frame their uh argument and also use their own success as proof of their own rhetoric uh in in and of itself which becomes a reaffirming narrative and i think as you say that's where the their their, their stability has 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 lain because they've been able to genuate what is an actual like culture war in, in in one form or another, very significant culture war. We're based solely around how you identify as a as a person. You know, are you Scottish or are you British? Are you pro independence or are you anti independence? And because of the, the, the there's no halfway house between those things. You the, the, there's no compromise. There are compromise policies, but not in terms of the rhetoric, which then just drives people to the. To, to one of those two camps, which in turn leads to people just going for whichever party is the uh, the, the strongest for them um, in relation to that. Maybe that is a, in a, a sort of similar-ish way 
um, if it's just on that that, pro- that question of independence, where the SNP is almost the one party that's fishing for that independence vote, whereas you've got three or four parties who are sort of going for that anti-independence vote. And certainly, especially in, in the wonderful first-past-the-post system in which we're forced to have UK general elections, you could kind of tell, especially since 2015, it's that anti-independence tactical vote hadn't quite worked out where whether it was meant to be with voting Dem in a particular seat or Labour in a particular seat or Conservative in a particular seat. And so you have the SNP sort of coming first um, in a lot of sort of two, three way marginals. One thing I think is, is interesting, actually looking at the Ormond polling as well, is about ethnicity. Um, so looking at what factors make a difference in terms of uh, whether or not you, you, you're more likely to support independence. As you say, national identity is a massive factor. And as we've said, sort of Brexit has exacerbated the, the margins among the tribes in terms of how they feel about their national identity. Also, age is a big factor. So younger voters more likely to support independence than older voters are. Income as well. So if you're earning between 40 and 60 grand a year, you're more likely to vote no than those earning less than 20 grand a year. But one is, which I think is really interesting, is ethnicity. So Bain voters, according to this, the, the, the regression poll they've done, that on would have done is, Bain voters are 1.64 times more likely to say they will vote for independence than white voters. Even kind of taking into account that there's a, a higher margin for error there because of the sample size. I find that a very, very interesting takeaway, but I also realise I don't know enough either about voters from ethnic minority backgrounds or Scottish politics to understand why that might be. Well, I'm not actually necessarily that, that surprised by that. I'm just trying to remember where I where I came across this. It, it, it's, uh, you know, ethnic minorities are more likely to describe themselves as British as a whole um, than uh, you know than than than, than white people. They're, they're much more likely to um, be page for lack of a better term, be patriotic, be take a bit more pride in the country and, and, and things like that. So it doesn't necessarily surprise me that you have in Scotland uh, BAME people latching on to the the national identity that little bit more in comparison to to white people. The other thing I think is really interesting from the uh, onward polling is just how volatile the po- the situation is regarding the polling. Even so, they, they've done two polls just a matter of months apart, and a massive change in support for independence just in those few months. When it comes to like the volatility of the uh, the, the support for independence, there's kind of like two elements that seem to be kind of feed, fed into this. One is it does seem to be that the the headline news can can affect it. Um, which is interesting in and of itself because the, um, the the drama of you know Nicola Sturgeon potentially being in, well Nicola Sturgeon actively being investigated for whether or not she uh, willingly misled the Scottish Parliament um, seems to uh, have had an impact on the polling um, itself for and, and damaged the independence cause at least in the short term. Um, but at the same time, you've got the fact that the the sport for Scottish independence is kind of like grounded in demographics that are less likely to turn out to vote. So you have younger people, as you said earlier, who are more likely to support independence, but younger people 
generally speaking, don't turn out to vote as much as people uh, who are older. I think something else that is interesting, this is more in the Brexit land, but within the onward polling, but it's also about who makes up the electorate. So in the Scottish referendum case, actually a lot of the reason why yeah, um, Scotland voted to remain in the UK is because of the votes essentially from uh, people who come from England to live in Scotland and they had a vote and they overwhelmingly broke towards staying in the union. Whereas in the EU referendum, you have the uh, you have, uh, EU citizens say living in the UK didn't get a vote. Um, if you were living in Gibraltar, I think you did. But uh, again, thinking about the, the, the three minutes, if you've got that sort of, if the franchise have been different and you had EU citizens being able to exercise their vote in the referendum, actually, you may well have seen a Remain vote. And that's not really something I thought about either. Um, but I think it's, a, it's very, very interesting when it looks to, when you're thinking about a kind of future independence vote. Kind of jumping ahead a little bit here, because we will be talking about like Alex Salmond and his new party in, in, a, in a bit. But one of the things that was very interesting when I was doing some reading up on it was that, um, their, that in, in their launch, um, for the party, there was a very specific statement of, you know, the people who should have the vote are the people who live in Scotland and only the people who live in Scotland. You know, uh, the no notion of, you know, the, the Scottish diaspora, whether that be in England, Wales, Northern Ireland or, or anywhere else in the world, actively having a, having a say in it. One of the most interesting bits of that onward report is when they look at what events might increase or decrease support for Scottish independence. The only scenario that was tested that might increase support for independence is if the SNP secures a majority and the UK government refuses a referendum outright. But then what we've talked about, on a, we, we've kind of idly speculated on, I, I believe it was probably the Not Enough Champagne quiz in the predictions round, um, and probably also in our movers and shakers picks, we talked about what, what, what the possibility of a sort of Catalan style, the SNP wins a majority, and goes ahead with a plan for a referendum without the agreement of the government. And actually, that would see support for independence fall, uh, apparently, sort of holding it unilaterally. And the other thing is about the date in which that referendum is held. So you've got a lot of, a lot of that polling suggests that actually a lot of the Scottish electorate want to see coronavirus sort of over and done with understandably want to see what the long-term effects of Brexit is going to be on the UK and Scotland before having the referendum. So that poll of certainly a lot of the argument from the, the ALBA party seems to be the SNP is not strong enough on independence, which isn't an interesting um, <laughs> view. Um, that's got the potential, I think, to, to massively scupper any sort of in the referendum bid, especially when, as you, if there's anything we know, Steve, for the past five years, is that referendums aren't really about what's on the ballot paper. You know, there's a lot of baggage which is brought to the ballot box. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. I mean, I think it's what you say about Alba there is is, is quite key. I mean, I, I I pulled up like at their launch, um, they they basically said that their aims were national independence for Scotland as an immediate necessity and an overwhelming priority. Like that, those that's what Alba is about uh, in its essence. It's putting the independence debate um, above everything else. 
which is why which is where we can get into almost like this potentially you know almost a mimicking of the tea party in the us uh kind of happening potentially in scotland around this where you know you've got the smp who for the, for the purposes of this metaphor are, are, are the gop they've got a breakaway group or at least an internal kind of pressure group in some capacity uh, within their their voter coalition of, of of alba um who are trying to force them to a more extreme element now granted just moving up the date of uh, the referendum isn't necessarily, you know, on par with what the Tea Party wanted, but it, it's the same kind of principle. In order to maintain control, Sturgeon may feel that she needs to act and um, uh, and actually kind of move quicker than she otherwise would do, which in turn, as you say, potentially damages the uh, the uh, you know the the independence cause uh, over the uh, not just the short term but potentially the medium and long term as well, because it's one thing to have an have a referendum. And then demand another one relatively quickly afterwards when you've when you've still got a significant you know number of of, of MSPs and can show like some support for it. It's another thing entirely to do it a third or fourth or fifth time, um, and that's I think where where Sturgeon has got an awful lot on her plate with all of this because the launch of Alba, if they are able to kind of find a footing, is going to be potentially very problematic for her and for the SMP as a, as, as a whole and for the, for their raison d'etre. Cause in effect, it's a traditional case of a more extreme party is coming along saying you're not good enough vote for us. It doesn't make much sense to me um, how you could say the SMP aren't committed enough to, to, to getting another referendum. But then again, I'm not Scott, I'm not, I'm not a Scottish nationalist. The launch of Alba can really throw a spanner in the works across the entirety of of, of Scottish politics because it can either completely scupper the SNP or if it does what they want to do, which is basically that their aim is to try and become the second biggest party um, or at least get to the second kind of biggest um, number of votes on the regional lists. They want to basically try and get a supermajority of pro-independence MSPs which is, is fine as an, an aim in and of itself, but it's either going to completely screw over the SNP, they're not going to, or they're going to not achieve anything and just not because it's a new party and, you know, there's actually not a lot of time and Alex Salmond himself isn't that particularly popular. And then you've also got, or, or it could go in the complete opposite direction, be 100% successful and you end up with a huge mandate, quote unquote, for, um, for a very quick referendum, which... As you say, may still damage the uh, the long term cause of independence of Scotland. Very weird situation, isn't it? We've not really talked much about the dispute, which again for two years has sort of consumed Scottish politics. Partly because it's just been a little bit impossible to follow and work out what was going on. Everything reported being very breathless, but it's almost like you you're stuck, lumped halfway through season four of a box set, and you've got to try and work out who everyone is and you know why is why is Walter White doing that? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Mainly just going off the Economist report on this. Alex Salmond stood trial for charges of sexual assault against 10 women and he was acquitted. He quit the SNP, I think, two years ago. Now has formed a new party. Nicola Sturgeon was then accused by opposition politicians of misleading Parliament and covering up what she knew of his conduct. As you say, there's a report, I think, into whether or not she broke the ministerial code 
and they said that essentially she didn't I think there's a there's a particular meeting so I think she said to a committee that she'd I think been told about uh something all uh, about the allegations on April the 2nd but there's a meeting on March the 29th at a sort of birthday party meeting I think at the chief of staff and was told and the report says basically it was a genuine they say it was a genuine mistake. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty much taken as read that Sturgeon did mislead um, Parliament, but, but it was very much just a case of, you know what, was it intentional or not? Because if it was intentional, then that's a cover-up, um, and in which case that's massively problematic. Um, although, based on the, um, the polling I have seen, wouldn't have been a problem for an awful lot of SNP voters who would have been still been happy for her to have uh, maintained her position. What did the First Minister know, and when did she know it? Sounds a bit familiar, Indeed. doesn't it? And it's very weird. So, and, and, and Alex, so Alex Salmon, despite his lawyer, and, and this is quite remarkable as well. So he, Alex Salmon's lawyer was filmed on a train having a conversation with someone on a phone, calls Alex Salmon the sex pest, also names two of the women who, were, who have accused Alex Salmon of, on the phone. And yeah, Salmon, this is in The Guardian, that Salmon admitted in evidence that he'd had a sleepy cuddle with one of the women involved. So we're not sort of, yet still wants to set up, you say set up this political party. It's weird. You've got these kind of old, like Alex, old men, sort of Alex Salmon, George Galloway, trying to set up political parties and be relevant. I, I don't understand why they don't just record a podcast. I think it's a big part of it. It's because they're the sorts of people who've spent their entire lives in politics and it's the only thing they've ever really known. Um, and as such, when that's taken away from them, they don't have a lot else. Um, throw in the fact that the, the, there's probably a degree of you know armchair psychology here, narcissism going on um, with them, uh, and you know they, especially for someone like Salmon, to go from kind of like one of the the heroes of the independence movement, that's got to be galling. So I can you can see how somebody might want to try and take back control of their narrative in that regard yes the fact that the narrative shift is because of his own actions in all likelihood is and reprehensible actions at that then you know you can see how he gets to that point potentially but it's mad still this also seems to be a bit of a weird attempt to sort of game a voting system as well um so the uh and of and so obviously in our not enough champagne bunker we're going to talk a little bit about this maybe finish off <laughs> with this and what the practicality might be because so in scotland they don't that they have ams and they elect half the seats with first past the post constituencies like you would do in the uk general election and then you have a sort of top-up party list system which i believe is a closed list so it's what we would have used to elect meps to the european parliament because the SNP usually does, I, this I think is the, it seems to be the thesis anyway, is the SNP usually misses out on a lot of constituency list seats because it does very, very well in the constituency first past the post races. Certainly from the person who was on the Today programme this morning was saying is that if you were to say vote SNP in your constituency vote and then for the list vote, vote ALBA, then you will probably get a pro-independence SNP MSP. And you'd also maybe get a chance to get another pro-independence ALBA MP 
in and that therefore the I, I suppose the gamble they're making is that that it's not going to split the vote say of the pro-independence parties instead it might take away seats from the conservatives the lib dems and labor the other sort of unionist parties that, that seems to be the the logic yeah, that, that that is the logic. It's because of the the, the nature of these uh, of the system that's being used here. It is really difficult to to know without actually doing some hard like statistical analysis with data that we just don't have yet. Like we don't have a notion really of what kind of level of support Alba will have on those uh, on those regional lists. I mean, just to put a, a bit of context onto this, um, on the regional lists, um, the SNP is currently on forty two percent. Um, which is down a little bit over the past few months. In theory, if the if they could, you know, replicate even just like ten percent or twenty percent of that SNP vote goes to Alba, that could radically change the makeup of the of the Scottish Parliament. Um, and and we know this is this can be the case because actually there's there's an actual term for for what's been what 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 this is. It's called a decoy list which um, is, is in effect a, a, a separate list that you put together to try and maximise your gains in, uh, in an AMS system. Um, this is, we know this actually exists and we know it works, actually can, or can work quite effectively, if not necessarily in the way, exact way you, you, you intend, uh, because of, of like all political mishaps, it's happened in Italy, um, where you know there was some uh, there was a case of a, a political party, I believe it was Forza Italia, um, creating a decoy list, which they did so well as part of that, they didn't actually have enough candidates overall to actually get, fill all the seats they would. Um, so they ended up missing out on like a dozen or so seats um, in, in in the legislature as a result. Now in Scotland, there have been attempts in the past to kind of create a, 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 a in effect a decoy list, which was struck down. Um, this was done in Edinburgh, um, where Labour do very very well in the constituencies, or, or did very very well in the constituencies at the time, um, and but weren't getting a lot of uh, list votes. So they thought, oh well, we'll be we'll be uh, clever buggers here, and we'll put up a cooperative party list. Um, to which the courts turned around and said, no, those are the exact same people that you were going to put on your Labour list because the parties are in, intrinsically linked, you know, um, in, in many, many ways. So uh, as, as a rule, we're not allowing that. Now, before people get very, very excited um, that maybe that, oh, this means Alex Salmon can't do what he's, he's proposing to do. It's the, the the reason the Labour uh, action was shot down was because of the direct link between the co-op party and Labour. That link does not exist between Alba and the SNP. In fact, quite publicly, as a result of all of the um, the stuff that's happened uh, and the Ferrari between uh, Sturgeon and Salmond, there is zero link between these two parties. But really, the question to me is what 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 are the potential outcomes here? What happens if it works, and what happens if it if if it doesn't? Well. If it doesn't work, well, Alex Salmond, Salmond is kind of sh- sh- shot his load and he's done. Like he's like, it, it proves that there is no appetite for a quick or, or a, a a fast turnaround when it comes to independence. If they're success, if he's successful, 
well, actually, that's probably more problematic for independence because it shows that there is an appetite for it. But as you say, that volatility that we've discussed, the fact that if you have it now, when people are more likely to want to focus on other things, you know, are people going to want to, to, to support it when things are a little bit more uncertain or, or, or whatever? So you have a you run a much greater danger for the independence movement as a whole if Alba is is, is successful, I would argue. But it's just going to be. It's it's very interesting times up in Scotland. I think is the safe way to put it, and it, it has the potential to, Alba has the potential to completely blow away the status quo, in a way that we never thought feasible previously, or be a complete dud and not get anything before uh, at all. Because at the end of the day, you've got to have you you've got to find enough pro independence people who are who are who want to make the uh, a referendum their number one priority they need to vote for for alba that they need to get i think at least 10 percent on the list to kind of guarantee getting a a a representative representative in every region but it's those votes are only really going to come from the smp and there's potential that that might damage the smp in other ways it's it's a very messy situation Speaking again with someone not directly okay with Scottish politics, my my instinctive reaction is to say that any party that relies on a huge amount of tactical voting is at a massive disadvantage because I'd have thought actually the amount of people who do vote tactically is generally quite small. It's also, I think, a bit of a reflection of the volatility, as you say, of the volatility of the of the electorate in the in Scotland, but in the UK as well. It's sort of Reminds me a little bit of sort of Nigel Farage and the Brexit Party, where essentially it's that that one person who has who's able to try and have that name recognition to bring people together. And Farage has that for a certain demographic of English voters. And certainly, yeah, Alex Salmond has proven himself a very skilled political operator over the past 15, 20 years. But um, you've sort of hinted of the his his, his approval rating now. I, I think again on the Today program this morning. I think I, I heard the figure quoted of eighteen percent of Scottish voters having a favourable view of Alex Salmond, which you can read one of two ways, can't you? That's not a great figure. On the other hand, if you need ten percent of the vote to get into a list, maybe eighteen percent is all you need. It, it it seems like a hell of a gamble. And, uh, and one that will be interesting to have a look at, I think, in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, like, it's it's a hell of a gamble in a lot of ways, but not for Alex Salmond. Like, he loses nothing really um, if this doesn't if this doesn't play out. But if it succeeds, boy, does it succeed! And suddenly he becomes, I would argue, probably more important to Scottish politics than the first minister, because suddenly it's as though Nigel Farage is actively calling the shots in in Westminster and I think that's what we could uh, you could end up with potentially north uh, of the border I think that's bollocks but <laughs> sorry I think Sturgeon's still more even I, I get it depends they, they could sweep the board but I think Sturgeon's yeah. probably I, I yeah no I think overall Sturgeon's probably fine um I know but like if it does play out as, as Salmon wants it then you know what it's 
you know, we'll have all got on our uh, got on our uh, backbench MP or choice or outsider choice or whatever for uh, for the movers and shakers wrong because there will be no bit other person to, that we can claim has been more influential, I suspect, than Salmond if he's right. I don't think he will be, but if he is, it's it's impressive. Mm. Not sure if I want to end this episode on praise for Alex Salmond. It's probably not going to work though. No, there you go. That's a prediction. Not. And in the crazy world of not enough champagne predictions means that it might just, no. Um, <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode. You can find us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you do, then please feel free to leave a review and talk about how mediocre we are. And in the meantime, if you like what we do and you'd like to support us, what can you do, Steve? You can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne, where for but a few pounds every month, you can uh, help support us by uh, giving us a few quid to uh, help deal with the running costs for the podcast. Um, if by doing so, you will gain access to unique podcasts that we record for our backers over there. Uh, and uh, yeah, you'll gain access to the odd piece of uh, unique blog content as uh, as well as some like roundtable discussions and things like that as well. So please head over and check it out. James Cram does that on the logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. Dave Depper composed our theme tune for Few Good Times. The podcast on Twitter at No Champagne Pod. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. <laughs> <laughs>